Welcome to Radioactive, a show that plugs you into the community. We're talking grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. And before we get going tonight, I just want to say thank you to everyone who put us at the top in City Weekly's latest Best of Utah rundown as the top radio station. Thank you so much. After a great radiothon and now that, cherry on top. Check tonight's show notes for a link if you want to read all about it. And on the topic of Radiothon, if you hadn't heard, thank you for everyone, especially the 1,706 donors who came through and helped us raise $243,000 to power KRCL for the next six months. That included 300 sustainers. And on our Gifts for Good, you are helping 23 swimmers get into the pool with Ray Swami, and you helped plant 77 trees with Tree Utah, our two Gifts for Good partners this last Radiothon. If you didn't get a chance to give, you can still make a contribution at krcl.org. Coming up on the show tonight, we'll have a clip from the latest in the Reframing the Conversation series from the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Department at the University of Utah, this time eradicating health inequities in Native American communities. You're also going to hear from Sue Robbins this hour, the radioactive community co-host emeritus. She is chair of the Transgender Advisory Council with Equality Utah. And this last week, there was more action on Utah's Capitol Hill when it comes to legislation affecting transgender youth's participation in sports. Also this weekend on Saturday, it is Transgender Day of Remembrance. We're gonna start though with a shout out to folks who may need help to put food on the table this Thanksgiving. There is a nonprofit working on so many issues, but one in particular this time of year is making sure folks have a turkey and a couple of sides on the table. They've also got another call to action for which they need your support. So let's pass that microphone and find out more. I'm Glenn Bailey with Crossroads Urban Center in Salt Lake City. You've been there how many years now, Glenn? Oh, coming up on 30. 30 years at this great nonprofit that helps to really uh, fill in the gaps in our social safety net in our community. I think when I spoke to you last, it was in June when you were setting up tents down at Salt Lake County asking that the county, not to mention the city, use its American Recovery Plan Act money on housing. And before we get into food security, can you briefly briefly give us an update on how that campaign is going? Yeah, absolutely. What we were pushing for is that a lot of the federal money that's already been allocated by the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, um, for different levels of government, city, county, state, would be used to deal with the uh, low-income housing crisis. And uh, since that time, the county mayor, uh, Mayor Wilson, has recommended to the county council that $20 million be put into the County Housing Trust Fund for that purpose. Um, the county council has not yet voted on that, so we're, we're supporting that request. At the state level, um, a lot of that action is going to happen during the legislative session, and we're supporting um, a request by Wayne Niederauer, the homeless coordinator for the state, I'm not sure his exact title, for $200 million, $100 million which would go to low-income housing and $100 million which would go to uh, permanently supportive housing or housing that helps people escape homelessness, and that will be decided first of next year. So we're still involved in that campaign. There's um, some glimmers of hope, and we hope some of that money gets put to use. You know, it seems to be a big focus here in the metro area, but um, affordable housing is an issue across the entire state. If you think moving to, say, Helper would be less expensive, it's not. Yeah, it's a statewide issue. Um, And I think even rural communities are, are recognizing how critical it is and how much it's holding folks back keeping people from staying in the community, uh, keeping essential workers from having a place to live uh, while they do the things that help promote and make those communities thrive. And one last topic here related, and that is we're sliding towards winter and cold today for sure. Um, The housing and homelessness issue, especially in the metropolitan area, has got to be weighing on your mind as we don't have enough beds in our emergency shelters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as we're recording this, that last night was the first night we had freezing temperatures. 
And that always is a cause for concern, especially since uh, the winter overflow plan, um, once again, is not in place. Um, I know the Salt Lake Valley Coalition to End Homelessness has been working hard at it. And there are some options available. You can, if you're lucky enough to be one of the 60 or 80 people, you can get a mat at Wiggins Center or they do the same thing at St. Vincent's. Um, there are some vouchers available, but the traditional shelters are full. And uh, it was only uh, yesterday that the uh, city council was presented with a plan to convert a motel to, um, I think it's two or 300 beds of um, winter overflow shelter. Um, and this is in the area of North Temple and Redwood Road, I believe. Um, and so that's very welcome, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make that operational. And the city's put some conditions on it. I think Salt Lake City is frustrated and rightly so that other communities are not stepping up to offer the same level of support for the homeless community that Salt Lake has, Salt Lake City has. Um, but that is no excuse for letting folks freeze to death on the street. And fortunately, I think we have public officials in Salt Lake City who recognize that as galling as it may be that they're not getting support from their colleagues in other communities. So there's some light at the end of the tunnel there, but there's a lot of people on the street, more than most of us have ever seen before. Despite investing as much as we have as taxpayers over the last couple of years in these new homeless resource centers. So we'll be following that. And thanks for the update, Glenn. Let's talk about food security. You've got two uh, events coming up I wanted to talk about. One is another call to end the sales tax on food. And that is a press conference you're planning on the 24th. What again are you asking for? We are asking because the state revenue uh, picture is so good right now. It's um, what, $614 million surplus dollars? Yeah. That, and that's just, you know, and then if you add in a lot of the federal windfall, it, it becomes even more than that. And we think that uh, we ought to take advantage of this opportunity to end the food tax once and for all. Um, as most people know, the legislature tried to double it not too long ago, and uh, people started passing petitions, and it was going to be on the ballot, and it forced them to pull back on that plan. Now we think we sh they should go even further and just eliminate it. Uh, it's time for it to be done with. I think it would cost about $130 million. The money is there. What I'm seeing is two schools of thought here, Glenn, and one is by lawmakers, well, everybody has to eat, so everybody pays this tax, so let's double it, and it's fair to everybody. Then there is the other side of that argument, which is it is the most regressive tax because everybody must eat. Those with less money um, spend a greater portion of their available money on food, and so why tax it? Well, I would say everybody has to eat, and that's exactly why we should not be taxing food. We shouldn't be taxing things that are essential to people's lives and well-being to their basic survival, like food. It is very regressive. And we think that this is an alternative to what's likely to be discussed by the legislature. And that's an income tax cut. And Utah already has a flat tax. Uh, everybody in every bracket pays the same percentage of income tax, uh, which is not progressive. And further reducing that, um, just really doesn't make any long-term sense. Whereas getting rid of a regressive tax like the food tax gives everybody tax relief um, and really helps the people that need it the most. All right, radioactive listeners, that call will be coming on Wednesday, right before Thanksgiving at 1 p.m. The Coalition of Religious Communities, Other Faith and Community Organizations will be holding this press conference that we just talked about. So look for it and then advocate for it as well. Another item on Wednesday, November 24th, directly related to the dining room table for Thanksgiving, your annual uh, turkey giveaway. Remind us who all is involved and who it's helping. Sure. Yeah, that's a Crossroads Urban Center event that we have organized for many decades. It's going to be at the Smith's Ballpark parking lot right across the street from the baseball park on 13th South and West Temple. We're doing it as a drive-through event again this year. So people just get into the queue and volunteers will load a turkey and three sides into your trunk. Um, it's sponsored uh, generously by Harmons and has been for many, many years. And they run a fundraising campaign 
throughout the month of November called Give a Gobble. And they raise money and then they match a lot of it on, actually it's more than a one-to-one -one match and provide all the turkeys and sides that we need for that event. So Harmon's is a key partner. Utah Food Bank helps with transportation. Um, there's different groups that help us like the BW Bastion Foundation and Rocky Mountain Power and others um, and tons of volunteers. So we're ready to go with that. That's Wednesday the 24th uh, from 10 to 3.30 went real well last year with our new drive-through format and once we get all that done we'll be having a press conference calling on trying to reduce people's grocery bills so that sort of thing isn't as necessary. So it's all tied together the call to eliminate the sales tax on food and also the give a gobble give out the turkey drive-through event <laughs> happening on Wednesday the 24th. Now, this is for folks who are in need. Do you have to pre-qualify, or is it an honor system that you need assistance? Yeah, last year we went to a complete honor system. You know, in past years we have asked for some basic documentation just to show how many folks are in the household and so forth. Um, starting last year, we are just taking people's word for it. It is for people in need, so we hope people will respect that. But we also know that Thanksgiving is going to be more expensive than ever this year. And so we expect that a lot of people might need a little extra help to have a holiday meal and be able to participate in the holiday like everybody else. And that's what we're here for. I was reading up on this year's giveaway, and it said that Harmon's last year donated over 900,000 meals, and they're hoping to hit a million meals this holiday season, starting with this big giveaway on the 24th. Where can people find out more about the this event, but also the services you offer to folks in need at Crossroads Urban Center, Glenn? Well, the best place to go is our website, crossroadsurbancenter.org. And uh, you're right, Harmon's is very generous. Our food giveaway is only a small part of what they do to try and address hunger in our community. So they're a great partner for us. Anything else you want to put on the radar while you have the microphone, Glenn Bailey? Yeah, a week from Wednesday, <clears throat> next Wednesday, on December 1st, we'll also be doing a press event. And we're going to be calling for that $200 million for housing. Um, and several of us will be involved for, with that. We're calling for it to be in the governor's budget and for the legislature to seriously consider this request by their own homeless coordinator to make a transformational investment in low-income housing. So we're looking forward to that as well. So what do you hope that translates into? Uh, let's wave a magic wand. And the governor says, yes. I think one of the concerns that uh, perhaps a general member of the public might have is, that's great. It's just going to disappear into developers' pockets or bureaucracy. What are you hoping that $200 million actually goes toward, Glenn? Well, I think there's a couple of different things. One, I mean, this this request has been divided into $100 million for housing that would directly affect folks trying to get out of homelessness. And that includes um, permanently supportive housing, which means housing where people get access to wraparound services. And that really works. That's part of something called Housing First, where you get folks out of homelessness and into a home. And it's the only thing most of us who've been in this business for a long time have ever seen actually work. 95% of the folks that get into permanently supportive housing do not experience homelessness again. And so that's really, really important. The other 100 million is going towards low-income housing generally. And you're right, the money's only as effective as how it gets used, but there are trust funds and guidelines and programs throughout the state of Utah that make sure that that money is used to produce rental properties that are below a certain amount of area median income. And we feel that the more deeply targeted that money can be, the better. So if it goes to produce units that are affordable to folks at 35% of AMI, or area median income, that's great. Um, traditional tax credit um, subsidies take that down to about 60% of AMI, which is usually considered workforce housing. But in this housing market, everybody's struggling to pay the rent. And the number one reason people use an emergency food pantry, and we know this because we run two of them all year round, is that they just paid the rent or they just paid the utility bill, something they could not avoid without catastrophe and they worry about the food last, and that's where we come in. 
So with these requests that we've been talking about during our interview, what is it you want the public to know or do, actually do, with this information? Well, we are are asking for folks to contact their legislators, um, to contact the governor's office, and to insist that we deal with the food tax and that we make a significant investment in low-income housing. And we will have more specific ideas about how you can get involved as we get closer to the legislative session. Right now, we're trying to get it on people's radar. We want this to be part of the discussion. So if people who are listening to this show have a chance to talk to legislators or public officials or people who are influencing those folks and say, this needs to be a priority, that's the first step. It has to be part of the conversation. And then we can push during the political process for more specific action. Well, Glenn, thank you for your update tonight, and please express my gratitude to everyone at Crossroads Urban Center for all they do, this time of year especially, but but year-round. Thank you so much. Well, we, we appreciate that. Happy Thanksgiving. Glenn Bailey of Crossroads Urban Center. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the November 24th drive-up Thanksgiving turkey giveaway and their press conference calling for the elimination of the sales tax on food. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive. Still to come, reframing the conversation, eradicating health inequities in Native American communities. Right now, though, passing the microphone to an old friend to talk about a potential compromise on transgender youth's participation in sports on Utah's Capitol Hill and Transgender Day of Remembrance. Let's pass the microphone to Sue Robbins. How are you doing, Laura? I miss you all so much. Oh, miss you terribly. Something terrible. But I know you're doing good work because I just read about it in the Salt Lake Tribune, a story by Bethany Rogers. Utah Bill would require transgender girls to change birth certificates before joining female high school sports. Proposal sponsor says her plan, quote, will accomplish the goal of preserving women's sports, unquote. This is what you've been working on behind the scenes all summer long. Yes, this traces all the way back to the general session at the beginning of the year where the bill was basically saying transgender girls couldn't participate in girls' sports. And it was a big uproar then. And then once we got into interim, which is what we call everything after the general session, uh, Representative Berkland agreed to doing some meetings because I had been asking to be able to keep talking throughout the year and do education. So we had four significant meetings with her, uh, with members of the governor's office, the AG's office, uh, the Senate, along with other representatives and people within the Equality Utah umbrella. And they were good to have. I mean, at times there was some difficult things said, and uh, but we kept moving. And sometimes it was emotional on my part, mostly. <laughs> it, it, it's, it was kind of hard at times being the only transgender person in the room and everybody in there is discussing about what's good for you and your community. Um, Sometimes you have to really bite your lip just because it's not necessarily animosity, but it is uh, ignorance in the true sense of the word where they're just not educated yet. You serve as chair of the Transgender Advisory Council now for Equality Utah. And in the story, you said there's been great progress made. Is this the final bill you can support? Uh, I, I hesitate to ever say I can support a bill because we're too far out to session to even start saying support, uh, never mind, it can start getting amended after that. Where I feel I am at right now is that we have made great progress because we went from what was effectively a full ban, even though that word may make some people bristle a little who uh, looked at it the other way. But if you say you're a girl, you're a transgender girl, you have to participate with the boys, then it's a ban because they're not going to participate with the boys. Yeah, so it's interesting because we the bill doesn't even address transgender men in high school sports. Well, this one does. So this is part of oh, the progress. This, this now does, yes. So it is it is missing the non-binary community. So we have a lot of details we want to go in and work. Uh, what it did is as we discussed all the elements throughout these meetings, we brought up a lot of little possibilities. And this threw multiple possibilities together. And that's where we're like, you know, we have ingredients for the recipe is what I said, but we need to figure out what the recipe is going to be because more got put into this than maybe we're comfortable with. Uh, For instance, if we 
codify the hormone therapy, which is the current policy under the Utah High School Athletic Association, if we just codify that, then that is more stringent than changing a birth certificate. So our question is, is why bother changing the birth certificate, making it a requirement? You could be forcing the youth to do that faster than they would have done it if they weren't interested in sports. Ah, the and unintended we, consequences of Utah yeah, lawmakers. Yeah, we don't want to try and make our youth accelerate their transition. There's a good, clean, healthy path, and we don't want it to be impacted by outside forces and outside requirements. Let them do it at the pace that's right for them. So there's things like that, the non-binary community not being addressed. Um, and one of the major points I made uh, my my testimony spoke to this was we have a potential bill to remove gender mark sex markers from the birth certificate. We have a potential bill to block uh, medical health care for our transgender youth. Then this bill says we will use the birth certificate and we'll use the hormone therapy to justify uh, how you participate in sports. So they completely conflict. So my statement was get rid of the other two. They have keep coming up and we never go anywhere with them because we oppose them broadly and it never changes. Here we have a framework that we might be able to make progress with. I am not gonna say I am signed up to it. I am not gonna say we will get to the finish line, but this has potential to get to the finish line. And that's the only, out of all the bills I fought, we've never had potential. So if I'm gonna sit here and spend my next three or four months with a bill, I'd rather have one that maybe we can get somewhere with than something I just fight to the bitter end. Oh, it is such a complex fight, no matter the issue. And then you add in uh, issues of sexuality, gender and identity and youth. And it's very combustible up on Utah's Capitol Hill, Sue. It is. And it's, you know, we've we actually had very few people come in to testify today, which was quite a surprise uh, maybe the word didn't get out. <laughs> Even saw Gail Rosica there and she didn't say a word. But this is, you know, we, when we go into what is we call gatekeeping with the transgender community, we're used to it. We don't really like it. And there's varying opinions of what is appropriate and what isn't. So making us go to hormone therapy for sports, it's already in a policy. So codifying it, there's an argument that it's no change. There may be an argument that we shouldn't have any kind of law without changing that. But I don't like adding both burst of getting hormone therapy in general. It just seems like it's a little bit of piling on. So we're going to have to continue the discussion. We've actually brought some of these elements of the bill up as individual items. The fact that they're all combined together is what we're going to have to talk about. And then the, the details, like I don't think non-binary people were intentionally left out. It's just that when you're not transgender, some people just automatically go the females and the males, and then they leave it at that. And the wording, if it isn't done broadly, ends up exclusionary unintentionally. Well, this is what you have taken on off, off the microphone, so to speak. And uh, I just want to applaud you for sticking with it. I know it is an emotional fight and requires a lot of focus for you. Um, and it brings me to what's happening on Saturday, which is Transgender Day of Remembrance. Yes, so Transgender Day of Remembrance is actually the day after we go through Transgender Awareness Week, which is from the 13th to the 19th. So the week, which is actually being discussed around the, the major members of the community of we don't need awareness, we need more action. Uh, but it was designed to create awareness so people understand who we are, which kind of fits into my uh, goal of always being educational. So it's the kind of week that I fit into. It's just we have so much going on. It's kind of taking me away from the education part when you're sitting there working on a bill. But Transgender Day of Remembrance, the day after that, is when we honor our dead. Those who have been murdered, who are more than predominantly transgender women of color. Uh, it's, it shows that intersectionality impacts us in a very hard and difficult way in that our losses tend to be very intersectional. And I always say that the more we are brought up in the public eye and dehumanized, the more people feel empowered to attack us with violence. 
resulting in more deaths. And over the last two years, we've seen almost a, you know, a very large increase of the amount of people that we have lost uh, through today. We, this, this year is a, is a record year. And I hate using the word record because usually it's used in sports and for positive things and it's a horrible thing. Uh, but we've lost at last I looked 45 of our community to anti-transgender hate resulting in murder. And uh, so when we go, there's a, a T of Utah, Transgender Education of Utah, Project Rainbow and the Utah Pride Center have all put on different parts of the Transgender Day of Remembrance events that will happen on Saturday. And to me, it's always a very solemn day, the way we approach it. Uh, so we honor them, we read their names and we remember them. So you could probably go to the websites of any of those organizations to get more information if you wanna participate in a Transgender Day of Remembrance event. Looks like it is 2 p.m. at the Rotunda at the Utah State Capitol, but it will also be streamed online. I'll be sure to put those uh, in the show notes, those links to those events, so folks can check them out. Sue Robbins, thank you so much. Thank you for always uh, answering the call to come on Radioactive, and thank you for all you do in the community. Well, Laura, I am always ready to come back on and be with KRCL, the uh the award-winning KRCL <laughs> once again, I see today. Oh, that's best right. Of best of best of Utah City Weekly. We're number one. Yes. <laughs> it's very nice. It is such great work. You know, maybe someday I can come back a little. We'll have to see how things go. Maybe if this session will kind of end some things. Or... Well, I hope you'll report out for us during the legislative session that starts in January. Absolutely. I would love to. All right, let's grab a screen grab. So frame yourself how you would like. And here we go. One, two, three. One, two, three. And one more. One, two, three. You know, I'm going to have to ask you for your catchphrase, though, one more time as we approach Transgender Day of Remembrance and also Thanksgiving. Boy, I got to remember how much fit to say. I can remember the last bit. Now it's like We see you. We hear you. Yeah, you just want that? Yeah. For just just just, just say for all of uh, my transgender community. So with all we have going on in this transgender awareness week and with transgender day of remembrance coming on to everyone in my community, in particular our transgender youth that are so precious. We see you, we hear you, and we love everyday people just like you. Sue Robbins, every time she says that, it gives me chills. And calls for a little sly in the family stone. More Radioactive coming up on KRCL. Thanks to George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation for investing in KRCL and communities throughout Utah. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. KRCL, your community connection since 1979. This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock tonight, Democracy Now! Followed at 8 o'clock by Thursday Night Psych, Gianni's Dirty Boulevard at 10.30, I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich Parks at 1 a.m., Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3, and then John Florence. Start your brand new day and your weekend off right at 6 a.m. And now a clip from the latest Reframing the Conversation, a lecture series held at the University of Utah by Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion a department that serves the entire university system and leads the way for the university in this work. I'll put a link in tonight's show notes for the entire webinar on on YouTube. But to set up this first clip, here's what they're talking about. Since the first European contact, the indigenous peoples of the Americas have suffered from diseases that had no immunities, and it's estimated that over 55 million people perished between 1492 and 1600 due to smallpox, measles, and influenza alone. That history and where we stand today in eradicating health inequities in Native American communities is the subject of the latest Reframing the Conversation from EDI at the University of Utah. On the panel, graduate student researcher at the U, Kaylee Dale, born and raised in rural Minnesota. Kaylee is a citizen of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe Indians. Christina Groves, 
a licensed clinical social worker at Red Mesa Behavioral Health, program director at the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake, Dustin Jansen, director of the Utah Division of Indian Affairs, and assistant professor of American Indian Studies at Utah Valley University, an enrolled member of the Navajo Nation, and Scott Willey of the university's School of Medicine. He attended the University of New Mexico and moved to Salt Lake City to coordinate the Native American Summer Research Internship in the Department of Pediatrics in 2016. He is also Diné. Let's get started with moderator Dr. J. Dina Ned. Associate Professor in the College of Social Work at the University of Utah. In May, she was named Associate Dean for the Office of First Generation Access, which supports the growing diversity of first-gen students. She is both a citizen of the United States and the Chickasaw Nation. Here's her first question for the panel. So, with our introductions out of the way, I'd like to start with a question for our panel about why we're all here today and what does it mean to reframe the conversation on eradicating health inequities that are experienced in our indigenous communities. So I'd like to start with a question to all of you, which is, what are your perspectives of wellness? What does that mean? I can go first. Thank you so much, Tina, for that question. Wellness really, I think for me, an interpret, an interpret um, a holistic perspective for individuals in my community and how they, um, assert themselves within their community, so whether that's a child, a young adult, an adult, or an elder. Um, each of these individuals have different phases in their lives, and wellness can be um, different for each stage um, in an individual's life. And so really, I think what it comes down to is how the individual feels um, uh, really with their um, development within their community, like how do they see balance within themselves and also how do they see balance within their community. And really that could be anything from their individual selves to the community to the overall society within their tribal community. Um, wellness can be interpreted to um, an individual's body um, or their spirituality or also their um, kind of physical um, appearance as well. So that's kind of how I interpret and see wellness within my community is that they have uh, zero kind of like no um, health, no issues related to it. So that's kind of how I see health within my community or wellness, sorry. Uh, great, Scott. I just want to follow up and say that wellness to me is um, a collection of everybody into one whole community. So I think wellness as not just how I am well, but how the whole community is well. I, I grew up in a small community called Elite Community in Mexico, which is more people. And uh, growing up there, one of my best friends, he was actually a senior uh, medicine man. Ceremonies. And one thing you would always say, even in practices, a lot of the, the, the panels would say is that it is a, it's a community. It's also an individual's role in that. But also, we look at our physical, our mental, and our spiritual health as well. Encompassing that, that holistic view of it. I, I remember he passed, he passed away, and I, I was speaking at his memorial. And one thing that he used to say when you pray, you, you dust the sand off yourself. When you sing, you pick yourself out of the And for Native people, a lot of ceremony and daily practices, it goes beyond physical treatment or ingestion of medicines. There's also a spiritual aspect that completes the healing process. Thank you. What, what, I'm, what I'm hearing from, from each of you is that help from if I can say an indigenous perspective of your lived experience and that of those who came before you and those who have raised you um, and have mentored you, health really is this holistic approach to not just an illness, but where everything is in balance of uh, mind, body, spirit, um, that 
honestly, I think is a new concept in the 20th, you know, 20th and 21st century for non-Indigenous communities, if I'm hearing that correct, right? Um, so that what's interesting to me in the history of, I don't want to say the founding of the United States, because, you know, this isn't a, uh, an American Indian Studies 101 class, but we weren't discovered as the Indigenous peoples of North America, Turtle Island. But this concept has stayed with us. It's intrinsic to the healthcare, the health and the well-being and the wellness of our tribal nation. Um, so thank you for sharing your perspectives. Now to, to tie into why we're all here today, I'd like to ask if anyone has um wants to share how do we need to reframe this conversation from our perspective? Uh so right, this conversation about eradicating health inequities in indigenous communities. And I think we need to start with the point that these health inequities have been placed on us and it has stemmed from uh, a very long time ago from taking children from their families and placing them in boarding schools and erasing who they are and you know forcing indigenous people to live in places that don't have access to healthy foods that don't have access to lands that can actually provide um, the food that we historically have used to nurture our bodies and our spirit and so i think we need to reframe the conversation on you know we have a disorder amount of diabetes in our uh communities to how did diabetes happen how did it get placed on us that's a really uh great thought Kelly. and i will also extend to the fact that we do need more um indigenous scientists um, folks who are interested in this work to really investigate some of these questions that we also have as well. Um, because more often than not, a lot of folks who do address our questions are people who don't come from our communities, who don't come from the tribe, right? So we do need more um, researchers to really investigate um, what does it mean for us when uh, Indigenous people are still have like high levels or you know suffering from it, and like have increased incident rates of um, health mortalities. And so really we do need to have more folks in leadership role. And um, there are a lot of wonderful folks, leaders in our community that are doing some wonderful advocacy um, with Congress, but that's not enough, right? We need to get folks from our state level uh, to actually participate in these conversations as well. Um, because Congress doesn't always have the power to um, make changes um, within our communities, but it has to start with um, our state leaders, um, people at the local level to make those changes, and that's where the conversation needs to start as well. You know, I'll, I'll add on to that. I work in politics and law working in government most of my, my legal career, and I think what I've seen that is most helpful and most efficient and most effective is when Native people make the lead of their own communities. And so, you know, hearing these words that are shared, I, I, I really believe that. I, I believe in self-determination. Um, you believe that or you don't, that's where I'm at in my life. I mean, I believe Native people can lead themselves, Native people can help themselves. And I think what they're, this health system, this treatment of illnesses and, and this uh, approach to wellness is what's in place now is isn't what our people did before. Okay, so it's new and it's probably missing a few things that our lives need. Um, in Galveston, Mexico, the Indian Health Service, you actually have the option of being treated by Western medicine or receiving traditional medicine. And you can get a, you can get a, uh, not a waiver, but a, like a voucher to use with uh, medicine men in your area that practice certain uh, ceremonies that treat certain um, uh, health-related matters, and you, you have that opportunity. And I think it it puts faith back into the resilience of your people. I mean, we I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll go into intergenerational trauma 
and the, the things that we carry with us, the negative things. But by putting native leaders first, native doctors first, native medicine first, native healthcare first, it reminds us people that we can do this on our own. There's resiliency, there's positiveness there, and that we but we need to be able to take that leap into ourselves. Um, you mentioned self-determination, which to me reminds me of what makes this issue very unique to indigenous peoples is this political structure that we have, not a racial structure, but an issue about sovereignty, which is also self-determination of tribes. And then this word resiliency is often associated with the history of indigenous peoples because we're still here after being exposed to diseases of Europe, primarily, um, the diseases or the genocide of eradication of native peoples, of their ways of life, of their culture, etc. And yes, we will get into intergenerational historical trauma as part of why balance to health is so critical in understanding these histories. With that long-winded introduction, I'd like to ask if you could share from that legal perspective, what is sovereignty and what is self-determination for those who may be unfamiliar with these terms as they relate to Native peoples? I think sovereignty in its most simple form and probably the political form that it is, it's the ability to make laws and be ruled by them but also your ability to form relationships with other sovereigns. It takes both of those things. Um, you have to be recognized by others as a sovereign who really exercise sovereignty. And in the United States, there's 574 federally recognized tribes. And we know that there's a so there's sovereignty here because when people landed on these shores, when they landed from England, Spain, France, uh, they saw the people living here and they entered into treaties with them. You don't enter into treaties with a race of people. You enter into treaties with another government. They were recognized as a government entity and they made certain agreements. And when these, when these treaties were made, there, was, there were certain promises that were made in exchange for other things. Uh, and one of those things, I think, uh, was being looked after in certain ways. We had education, we had food, right? You had migratory tribes that went at huge routes for gathering food and hunting, and then they were limited to a small reservation where they couldn't follow game or forage food according to season. So they became reliant on food, reliant on health care, and things of the sort. Self-determination um, was is this idea that a government can do for itself, can make its own own decisions for itself. And then in the late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s, uh, in the United States, the United States government said, you know, we've been trying to handle this Indian business ourselves and it hasn't been really going anywhere. We need them to maybe they can do it better on their own. They understand their communities, they understand what they, their needs are. And so they, they they put forward legislation that would allow tribes or at least restrict the loose the restrictions on tribes to allow tribes to work for themselves and to help themselves on the on the government levels and the community culture. Thank you for that definition. Um, it's interesting because it seems like what does that say about everything old is new again? And if we go far enough back in our histories, the way in which tribal people raised their children and collected their food, practiced their spirituality, their religion, if you want to call it that, um, how they raised their children, that was admired by those who came to this continent as, what is this thing that children have rights? What is this thing that children are happy? And that other adults in their communities or in their villages look out for them and help raise them, only to eradicate that which was natural and that worked for the people of this continent, to say, no, that's not the way you raise children. They should be seen and not heard. 
And then when Native peoples didn't want to change that, then they, uh, then the U.S. government created these boarding schools and the Indian removal policies. Because how do you eradicate a culture better than separating your children and the next generations from their families in order to eradicate who they are? Yet now, the U.S. government says in the 20th century, oh, we made a mistake. We didn't do that right. We want you to be a part of us. We want you to assimilate into the United States. And I don't know if you all know this, but American Indians, Native peoples of this country, weren't even considered citizens until the 1920s. And in, the, and in Utah, I believe, it wasn't even until the 1950s that tribes could vote and that their vote would matter. So it's interesting how policy, and again, I think the hosts of Hinkley, let's do politics, for having us here today, but it's interesting how policy has impacted our ability of indigenous peoples to be healthy because it's been the policies that have been placed on tribal communities that have placed them in these health mechanisms. So, moving on, with that framework, what factors now, today, are impacting our health? And where does culture enter into those um, factors that impact our health. Yes. Yep. Um, factors that impact our health and where does culture enter into Right. So, um, you know, um, I grew up uh, reservation adjacent. Um, I grew up on the city next to uh, a couple of different reservations in Minnesota. And so, and my mom worked for Indian Health Services. And so I was, um, I used Indian Health Services growing up. That was my form of health care. Um, and, but I liked it because my mom worked there. And um, my mom is a nurse and so she made me love nurses. And so I think my health is impacted on, you know, where, the on where I grew up and how I was accessing healthcare. My mom chose to take me to Indian Health Services. It was a hospital in the town I grew up in. Um, that wasn't from Indian Health Services, but she wanted me to go to a place that Native people were working there and that would take care of me and my health. And so I think the factors that impact our health a lot are who are who is taking care of our health when we're sick or growing up. And I think that when um, Indigenous people are taken care of by Indigenous peoples, um, I didn't see the healthcare system as scary um, like that. Um, and um, those types of factors helped me be healthy. And because my mom was a nurse, we ate I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, it proved another good <laughs> um, And those types of factors impacted my individual health. And then that, because of how I was impacted that way, I don't think my community saw that kind of health, or they did see that kind of health and wellness when they went to IHS because they were taken care of by Native peoples as well. Thank you, Kelly, for sharing uh, your thoughts on really the factors that influence health. And there's so many factors. Um, for me, I wanted to share a story with um, kind of how I started to view my community's wellness. So after I received my associate's degree from Salon College in New Mexico, I worked one year as a telemetry technician at Salon Regional Medical Center in Arlington, uh, New Mexico. Um, and it's a border town. Um, next to the Navajo Nation. And as I was working um, late at night, we had a patient that came in, and this individual had a um, an interesting um, EKG 
report that was shared with us that it came with the patient. Um, unfortunately, the patients did not need to be at our uh, clinic because it was an error, a reading error from the um, Indian Health Service folks, right? Misplacing a lead can change um, an individual's um, heart rhythm. And so once our physicians at our um, hospital figured this out, uh, we were figuring out trying to see what was wrong and then we found out that it was just a, um, an error from the technicians who were reading the report. And so really the story comes down to what brought that individual into our clinic. And there are so many factors just looking at this one person to see that this stems to all community members within our societies. And we can look at the environment, right? Where our um, individuals grew up, um, where did they live? And, you know, folks can either be, we're all tribal peoples. So I'm not trying to differentiate people who uh, maybe grew up in a city who identify themselves as urban natives or urban indigenous peoples, or folks that grew up on rural sites who may be more traditional, right? I'm not trying to separate the two individuals, we're all tribal people. And really, um, the kind of the environment impacts us all. So from my perspective, growing up in where I was from in Brooklyn, you know, we saw a lot of issues with uh, food deserts, right? Um, there's communities that don't have access to quality food or fresh produce, yet, you know, the only thing that you can find on the shelves are foods that have high calories, high fats, high sugars, and those things can stem to um, folks who come from families that live in poverty. And the only thing that they could purchase is things that are convenient for them. And what's convenient on the shelf is those fatty foods, high sugar stuff. And then they're feeding it to our, their families, right? You then we see adolescent diabetes, early onset diabetes. Um, so those are a few of the factors, and if you look at it from different stages, um, you can get down to the micro level of what's impacting these individuals. And that is a clip from Reframing the Conversation, Eradicating Health Inequities in Native American Communities, a series produced by Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah, which includes the American Indian Resource Center, Black Cultural Center, Center for Equity and Student Belonging, the Dream Center, the LGBT Resource Center, Inclusive Excellence, and Health Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. My thanks to EDI's Eunice Contreras for making sure we connect and share reframing the conversation with you here on Radioactive. And check tonight's show notes for a link to the entire episode of Reframing the Conversation we shared with you tonight, including a transcript. I'm Laura Jones, and that is Radioactive. Thanks for listening. Going to leave you tonight with a new one from Sting, Rushing Water, on KRCL.